America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. And welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, hopefully, we will have our interview <laughs> with Mark Skousen, who has not quite called in yet, Ron, so we're going to talk a little bit about him. Yeah, and- I got my fingers crossed. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm confident that he's going to come in. So let me just let me just get the bio out of the way, and we'll tell him that we did this just in case, and then you and I can start to talk about some of his his ideas. But um, Mark Skousen earned his PhD in economics at George Washington University, has been and named one of the top twenty living economists in the world, which I need to ask him about. It's better to be the top twenty living economists than like the top. <laughs> the, Dead economist, right? I mean, what do you think? I mean, from a yep. from a living point of view, I'd rather be that. <laughs> but in in 2014, he was appointed a presidential fellow at Chapman University in California, and more recently, he was awarded the first ever triple crown in economics, which I've never heard of this. And this is kind of, I guess, a new thing that Steve Forbes is doing, the chairman and editor of Forbes Media, and this is for Skousen for his work in economic theory, history, and education. And he's got, I don't know, two dozen or so books, Ron, written for the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Christian Science Monitor, regular appearances on CNBC's Cudlow and Company, which I want to ask him about, Fox News, C-SPAN, Book TV, and hopefully he'll join us today on the Soul of Enterprise. Well, so let's see. But, Ron, I know that he, to, to, he may be in the top 20 living economists, but he's you're kind of like number one or number two guy, right? I mean, you just love this guy. I, I do. I have for a long time. I I had a chance to meet him way back when his book, uh, The Making of Modern Economics, came out. He gave a talk at Laissez-Faire Books in San Francisco. And I forget the year, Ed. It was 1990s or something. I forget the first edition of that book. It's up to its third edition. And mm. I just remember uh, reading it and just thinking, wow, this is just brilliant. And I read a couple of other things by him. And since, I've read every economics book he's put out. And he's put out some great ones. Uh, he even wrote an economic textbook called Economic Logic, which is, uh, you know, I'm reading it going, God, I wish I could have had this in college instead of, <laughs> you know, what I did study with Keynes and all Samuelson. that. It, oh, no, I didn't have Samuelson. But uh, and, and the guy and the book I did have was better than most because it, he did at least profile Austrian economists. He had Hayek and Mises and Friedman and, you know, others. But uh the economic logic book that Mark wrote is is just really, really good. It introduces you to the whole, you know, marginalist revolution, the subjective theory of value and and all of that. It, it, let's just say it would have uh, 
prevented me from going down some dead ends. <laughs> That's probably a good way to put it. Good way to put it. You know, I, I, I was thinking about this in, in prepping for the show here, and I was like, the I think the my my first exposure to him was through you. I mean, there's no question about it. I I don't think I had known who who Mark Galson was until you had mentioned him a number of years ago. And I'm pretty sure the place that you sent me was his great essay published in the the late 90s called Economics in One Page. Right. Which, um, you know, if he doesn't show up, we can do a show on this this one article. It's great, isn't it? Oh, it's just it's absolutely fantastic. You know, he he just he and he goes so far so far as to say, actually, we'll bring it down to forget about uh, he can reduce it to one word, which is just price, although he does alternatively suggest cost as an, another alternative and i was going to ask him about what he thought the difference between those two because you and i have very specific definitions that we use when we're teaching this stuff right because right. I, I think of costs as just a form of price right we talk about the cost of input but aren't inputs pr denominated in price right Right. <laughs> right. Ultimately, you know, the, 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 the cost of one thing, you know, uh, or the, the prices of one thing potentially lead from cost to another, etc. So, you know, and everything has, depending upon whether you're the purchaser or the seller, either a cost or a price. I guess that's how I would would describe it is that, you know, like, you know, the, the way or the way that we usually talk about it is that the, the person who's doing the buying only cares about the price that they're paying from the from the provider they they don't care about the cost of the provider right 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 and that's that's up to them but um pretty interesting thing so but but I, you know the, and he lists you want i don't know if you do you want to go down this path run yeah let, let, let's do like it because cost. i haven't i didn't read that and prep for this show and i and i uh, haven't seen it in a while but I, I do remember wasn't that something that melton friedman had said that you can put all the important lessons of economics on one page so mark tried to take him up on the challenge and that's i think why he produced that Yes, yes. And of course, you know, it was he 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 opens with that from that Friedman quote. And then he says that, you know, Henry Hazlitt, of course, who we've profiled on this show before, uh, did it masterfully in his book, Economics in One Lesson. Of course, there's one lesson. And then the book is like 350 pages of how the lesson is practically applied. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> which I mean, it, and it's great because you just have absolutely everything in there. But you know, he he did say, says then he went through and he made just a, a list of some of the things that he um, observed as okay. These are the really important ideas as to as to what we would have, and he he narrowed it down to fifteen of them. And I'll, I'm just gonna I won't read them all. Let's let's kind of quick take them in turn, right? And the first one is self interest. And what he means by this though is important to not think about this in terms of like the um, the the Ayn Randian selfishness, right? Right. He, he 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 says, look, the, the and this comes from Adam Smith, the desire to better our condition comes with us from the womb and never leaves till we go to the grave. Well, no kidding, right? We all, of course, want to improve our, we, we breathe in our own self-interest. Yep. Right? Um, and, of course, that then leads to, to Milton Friedman's talk about since we are self-interested, that's why the, the, the most efficient way from an economic standpoint to spend money is you spending money on yourself because you're never going to be as careful. Right. Because you have self-interest in that particular type of type of transaction where you're spending money on yourself. Yep. I wish more people made that distinction between selfishness and self-interest because they are different yeah. things. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, and I, and I think that's where, and he's got another essay on Rand, but which we won't go into, which he does draw that distinction, and I think he's right on with that. The second one he talks about is economic growth, right? And he says the, the, the key to a higher standard of living is the expansion of savings, capital formation, education, and technology. And and what I would, would want to talk to him about there is, is has he talked with, because I know he knows him, George Gilder, on this whole notion that that growth really just can come down to one word, and that is knowledge, or learning. Learning. Well, well, well I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wealth is knowledge. That's all right. Learning is growth. I'm sorry. Yep. Right. And learning be, being growth, exactly. Right. You know, um, and I think that's interesting. Although he does make some interesting points in some of his other work, which perhaps we'll get to later in the show, on the 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 fact that it's not consumer spending that drives the economy, but actually. The expansion of savings and capital formation, right? right? Um, and, and I think he, he, explain, yeah. he explains that better than anyone. He does. Right. <laughs> In fact, he uh, he's on on top of his other contributions. He's contributed uh, to the national income accounting with his uh, gross output statistic, which now the Bureau of Economic uh, or the Census Bureau is now, you know, using. They're issuing mm -hmm. uh, a whole series on that. So. That that's really impressive. <laughs> well, what, let's let's why don't we talk take a just a, a deviation from this. Talk a little bit about that, Ron. Just assuming at this point that we're not going to get a chance to talk to him, so I think we we got to hunker down here, right? <laughs> so I'll I'll uh, I'll keep this list going, and we'll we'll plow through the, this during the show, and then I think what you want to do is as we as we come to to spots that you have a particular interest in or some knowledge on, let's talk about that. Let's talk about this go thing. What's what is what is your understanding of it? What makes it different? Why is it the better way to look at something from an economic growth standpoint rather than GDP? Well, you know, and we can, we, we've talked before about the limitations of the gross domestic pro, uh, product measurement, right? The fact that sure. when a human, when a human is born, the per capita GDP of a country goes down. When a sheep is born, it goes up. So <laughs> something's wrong, right? When there's Hurricane right. Katrina, GDP can go up. More government spending, GDP can go up. I mean, there's all sorts of weird, you know, a divorce happens, GDP goes up because now you've got two of everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and obviously it's got limitations as any measurement would. But the thing that, that Mark did, and he wrote about this in a book that he published in 2015 called The Structure of Production. And it's been something that he's been working on a long time. This goes back to books he's written prior to that. And in April of uh, 2014, the Bureau of Economic Analysis uh, at the U.S. Department of Commerce announced this new data series, part of the U.S. National Income Accounts. And Ed, these things haven't, you know, they make tweaks to them, but there hasn't been a new, <laughs> you know, a new data series in, in, in a while. And Mark came up with this, and it's called Gross Output by Industry. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it is it's almost twice the size of GDP in 2014. And I, I haven't looked at the most recent numbers, but this thing was 30.1 trillion, $31.3 trillion. Whereas, wow. our, whereas our GDP was 17.6. So almost twice as high. And uh, the, the go is, is the gross output measurement is kind of the make economy. And, um, Another another way he explains it, because we always hear that, you, you know, you see this, and I still see this on CNBC, and economists say this, and it drives me crazy. Consumer spending is two-thirds of the economy, 
Have you heard that? Right. Oh yeah, it, always. Uh, Pretty oh, right. It's a reg, It's a cadence. It all over, especially during the holidays, right? Right. And right. under Skousen's measurement, it's actually about it's less than forty percent of the economy because what his metric shows is that, and this is just common sense. Consumer spending is largely the effect, not the cause of prosperity. I, right. r- stop and ponder that. Mm-hmm. Consumer spending is largely the effect, not the cause of prosperity. Right. This, I mean, this goes back to the whole supply side movement and, you know, John Baptist say and all of that. Um, it, it, and then he says that. Go, gross output, is a reflection of Say's law, whereas GDP is a symbol of Keynes' law because it's Mm. a demand-side number. So he thinks Go is a measure of the production sector and GDP is a measure of – more of a measure of welfare. Uh, And there's lots of ways to think about this, and I know this is really wonking out here. We've probably lost every listener, but um, Go is like gross – where GDP is like net on an income statement. Yeah, and I wanted to talk to you about that. Well, let, let's let's save that and put it in in the the back burner for a second because one of the things that I came across in his work is that his economics textbook, one of the ones that you mentioned, starts with the income statement, right? And I think that that's that's really interesting that that's where he would begin. But you know, Ron, I, I got to tell you, I'm interested in this, so this is kind of cool. And we're up against our first break, <laughs> so want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website thesoulofenterprise.com, where we will post show notes even for this show, even though uh, our guest was unable to join us today, but that's okay. And we will also post show previews of upcoming shows as we move forward. But right now, a word from our sponsor leading results become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson if your site is not the best lead generation tool you have we should talk we are leading results We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You. 
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. Ed and I are testing our improv skills. <laughs> Because our guest, Mark Skousen, the great economist, has not shown up yet. The other thing, Ed, is um, he's the founder of Freedom Fest. Yeah. Conference in, in Las Vegas, which I've never been to. We, you and I talk every year. We should go to that. We should go to yeah, that. Yeah, I know, I know. We're always busy. You know, it's always falls on dates that just are conflicted out. But uh, it's, uh, it's really something. But uh, And also, he did you mention he, I believe, he used to work for the CIA, didn't he? Yes, yes, he was a CIA uh, uh, analyst. Uh, so hit one of his unique claims to fame is that he's worked in government, he's worked in private industry, and he's worked in in uh, academia. So really has uh, has the, the the best or worst of all worlds, depending upon how you want to want to frame it. <laughs> and so. Ed, when I and he also uh, used to have an investors uh, investor newsletter, and he and he wrote book books on investing. In fact, his classic, I think, is Investing in One Lesson. And I used to give that book out to uh, my customers when I practiced mm. as a CPA, when they used to ask me investment questions. I gave them a copy of that book. It was fantastic. It, mm. it walked you through everything, you know, owning stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you name it. He kind of explained everything and kind of talked about how to balance your portfolio and risk assessment and all that. It was just really practical short concise but but absolutely spot on and i just loved it good and, stuff yeah it really was um so yeah going back to the gross output measure just for a minute uh you know obviously there's flaws with any measure but i i just love the fact that this gross output puts consumer spending at less than 40 percent uh of the economy and, and puts the focus on business and production and the supply chain now supply chain is massive and mm -hmm. we it just the gdp um doesn't necessarily count it now one of the criticisms of this is is double counting but double counting happens in any system that uh, right. national accounts that you i mean you're going you're always going to confront double uh double counting but i just i i love the idea that he's trying to look at the production side of the economy because you know, as we always say, I think you've said it several times, and George Gilder originally wrote it, Marx understood that <laughs> the value of an economy was its production, and he didn't want to nationalize consumption. He wanted to nationalize right. production, the means right. of production. Yeah. Right, right. No, absolutely. Well, anyway, just plowing through his uh, the economics in one page, and we're on the third of them, but I think we can go through this pretty quickly, Ron, and that is the third one is, is uh, trade, meaning voluntary exchanges are not like for like they are both sides are made better right the double thank you moment all of the stuff that we've talked about previously that in, in a trade we're all made better off by because the value increases on both sides right and in fact we're, we've decided to do a show i'm not sure when but talking about the meaningless meaninglessness of the trade deficit and why that shouldn't concern any of us uh and right. just kind of take on that whole issue because it's that's a total accounting fiction doesn't account for economic reality at all well, i got some good news ron R mark is on the line welcome to the soul of enterprise <laughs> mark skousen <laughs> all right hey, glad to be on your show hi mark 
Ron Baker here and Ed Kless. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. We're thrilled to have you. Hey, my pleasure. Glad to be with you. Uh, we actually met once, Mark, when you put out, I think it was the very first edition of your book, The Making of Modern Economics. I don't know if you're going to remember this, but you gave a talk at Laissez-Faire Books in San Francisco. <laughs> and you even brought the accompanying music for each chapter, I think. And you gave a talk on that book, and it was fantastic. I just that that's a fantastic book. I just noticed that you came out with a third edition of it. Yeah, it's now published by Rutledge um, uh, out of the UK and doing very well. I think it's really uh, sparked an interest in the approach that I took in in uh, describing the great economic thinkers from Adam Smith on and making Adam Smith the heroic figure. So you had a running plot. You had a hero, Adam Smith, and his system of natural liberty. He has enemies like the Keynesians and the Marxists and the institutionalists who try to destroy the house that or tear down and create their own uh, house of economics and yet um, left for dead uh, several times, but resuscitated by the Austrian school and the British school and the Chicago school and, uh, and then triumphs in the end with uh, the uh, collapse of the uh, socialist uh, Soviet model in the early 1990s and uh, has faced some uh, difficulties with uh, various financial crises and so forth, but still is flourishing today like like really never before. So that book, uh, The Making of Modern Economics, is developing toward a a classic model that no one else had done before, because if anybody who studied history of economics, and it's not taught very much anymore, unfortunately, but those who do study it, the previous books never had a, a central theme. They, they, it was always, well, here's what one economist said, here's what another economist said, and it's kind of a hodgepodge of differing views. And I, I, focused, uh, I changed the whole um, uh, pedagogy, if you will, uh, in economics. So uh, uh, it's, it, it's one of the, it's definitely uh, a book that I'm extremely proud of. And, and I think it will, despite its very boring title, The Making of Modern Economics, uh, I wished I had uh, Robert Halbrunner's title, The Worldly Philosophers. That, that's really a classic. Uh, but uh, still very pleased with, with that book. And yes, I do remember appearing in Laissez-Faire when it was in San Francisco uh, when that book first came out. So we, we definitely miss Laissez-Faire books. I don't know if you know or not, but it was purchased by Agora Financial, and they basically uh, uh, put it out of business, and it's very unfortunate, I think. Yeah, yeah, I used to live there practically. But Mark, just on the book, I mean, it, I, it's just, it's a classic. And what I absolutely loved about it is not only do you talk about these economists' ideas, you also reveal some of their little picadillos and other personal things about them that are just absolutely fascinating. Like, isn't it, Milton Friedman was into hand, was it handwriting analysis? He, <laughs> handwriting analysis, yeah, and he he would uh, uh, he, he would. Uh, an economist would show him his handwriting or anybody, frankly, and he would, you know, he's an amateur uh, 
uh, at it, but uh, it was fun to uh, talk about uh, various economists and Karl Marx and and how he was backwards looking and Keynes, who was uh, very creative based on his handwriting. It was really kind of a fun exercise. So, Mark, we were just talking while we were waiting for you, we were talking about your book, The Structure of Production, and how the Bureau of Economic Analysis picked up your your gross output statistic as a new data series. And I absolutely love this. I read the book, and I just find it so fascinating that you were able to do this. And I just wanted you to kind of explain in your own words. I tried. I probably botched it. But what is gross output? So... I think you have to understand, have to go back a little bit and and take uh, and look at the main macro statistic that everybody uses, uh, GDP, gross domestic product, as a measure of, of what's happening in the economy. Uh, and uh, it just dawned on me uh, years ago that uh, GDP did not include the supply chain, that it was only final output. And I like to compare it to um, kind of top-line and bottom-line accounting. For those who are familiar with accounting and finance and watch CNBC, they always talk about top-line and bottom-line. So the top-line is sales and revenue, and the bottom-line is earnings. Uh, And every publicly traded company, every quarter brings comes out with these statistics, and and no analyst would be worth his salt if he just looked at the bottom line, earnings, because it's sales that determines what earnings are, and sales come first and earnings come second. And so gross output is basically saying to economists, welcome to the 21st century. Let's catch up with uh, the accounting and finance uh, uh, departments. And let's have a top line and bottom line of uh, measuring the economy. So the the top line is gross output. It measures spending at all stages of production from the earliest resource stage uh, uh, to the final output, the finished product. And then GDP is the measure of the finished product only. So in order to get to the finished product, you have to talk about the supply chain you have to talk about R&D and the technology and everything that goes into it. And, and uh, people are rather surprised that GDP measures final output only. And it was a decision made back in the 40s when Keynesian economics was very popular. And, and the only thing that mattered was final effective demand, the finished product, the consumer is the is the king and whatever the consumer does and kind of ignored the supply side. So gross output is really a supply side statistic that measures spending really aggregate supply, aggregate demand in its fullest sense of the word. Uh, and uh, it's a big number. It's $43 trillion in the U.S. economy. You know, GDP is $20 trillion. But uh, if you add in the supply chain, you get gross output spending at all stages of production, the intermediate stages, whatever you want to call it, and it's uh, $43 trillion. turns out to be much more volatile than GDP. It also is a really good leading indicator. Studies are, are being done now by a number of private economists that show that uh, 
particularly the supply chain, is very, very helpful. It's, it's been growing faster than GDP, which is a good sign that the economy is growing. And uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just tickled to death in 2014 when, when uh, the BEA, I'd been encouraging the federal government agency, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, to, uh, to measure this statistic on a regular basis, on a quarterly basis, just like GDP. And in fact, uh, they're promising that within the year, <coughs> excuse me, within the year, they'll be uh, uh, releasing quarterly GDP uh, or gross output at the same time as GDP. So you have top line and bottom line every quarter of national income accounting. So I think it's a big advance for the economics profession. And I'm glad to see that it's now being recognized. Yeah, no, it's, it's a wonderful contribution. And the other thing I love about it is it totally destroys that old trope that, you know, consumer spending is two thirds of the economy. If I hear one more economics analyst say that I'm going to scream, um, well, because as was, you point that out, was my reaction, that was my yeah. reaction too. And, and I've, I've, you know, it's like a bad virus or a bad penny. It just keeps coming back and, and young analysts who work for AP or the Wall Street Journal and so forth, they, they constantly promote this idea that if only consumers would spend more, if only the government would spend more, GDP would grow faster. We'd have faster exactly. economic growth. And really, <laughs> consumer spending is the effect, not the cause of prosperity. Absolutely. It either either consumers aren't spending enough or we're saving too much or we're not, you know, it just it's so confusing. But Mark, unfortunately, we're up against a, our first break and on the next segment, my colleague Ed Kless is going to take over and ask you some questions. But uh, folks, in the meantime, we'd like to remind you if you want to send Ed or myself an email, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. 
The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And yes, we are back with Mark Skousen, who at one time was named one of the top 20 living economists in the world, which, Mark, I guess is better than than being the top dead economist, right, from one perspective? <laughs> It's nice to be alive, and I, I even have a business school named after me, and I, I at the Grantham uh, uh, University, and and I tell people, I said, to have a school named after you, you either have to be a billionaire or dead. So I uh, imply that I'm a billionaire, but then I add probably a billionaire in pesos. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, uh, look, we could talk about your background quite extensively, but um, I wanted to, I guess, jump to the heart of it. And and from an economic policy perspective, what would you give? What grade would you give to the first twenty months of of the Trump presidency? Or I guess another way of saying it is, do you think your colleague Larry Kudlow is pulling what's left of his hair out? Oh, well, he. If you heard what he just said uh, the other day uh, at uh, one of these. Uh, uh, cabinet meetings, uh, it was clear that uh, he is trying to put uh, Trump's best foot forward in terms of his disastrous trade policy. Uh, but uh, other than that, I certainly applaud uh, tax cuts, uh, pulling back regulations, um, his uh, efforts to um, keep, you know, get government off the backs of the people. I think he's He's making some great progress there. Uh, and th- I think that's evident in how well the stock market is doing. Uh, but, you know, the stock market was rallying under uh, President Obama as well. So I don't think we can use that necessarily as a, as a full measure. The Economic Freedom Index will be the key thing to look at as it comes out in the next couple of years to see if the U.S. can reestablish itself in the top ten of, of freest countries. That's really the best criteria for ultimate success. And uh, I think the jury is still out and uh, the results will probably be negative about Trump's uh, uh, trade war because it's just disrupting uh, long-term agreements with many countries. And while uh, if he took the approach of uh, of um, quietly behind the scenes sitting down with China and Europe and saying, let's do deals like Europe just did a deal with Japan that virtually eliminated 99% of all tariffs between Europe and Japan. Uh, That was done very quietly, and then they make an announcement. Uh, Trump needs to use uh, that kind of diplomacy rather than this uh, public berating of other countries and and his uh, low-level vocabulary uh, uh, that, you know, I don't mind a bully pulpit and that sort of thing, but he's a, he's a very divisive person, and I don't think he's really helping our cause, uh, particularly, especially, and, and you know, if the election turns out 
in November uh, of the Democrats uh, taking control of the House again, it's back to gridlock and except for executive orders, there's not going to be any change. Yeah, no, agree with you there. Um, well, I want to take this down to a sort of a way to perhaps relate micro and macroeconomics together, because I think you're one of the the few people who has has successfully, I, I think, integrated those things. As you said in one of your books, you start with the financial statement, you start with the 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 P and L, and work your way up. And I think that's a, an innovative approach. But mo- a lot of the people who listen to the show are small and medium business owners, and I, I'm just wondering what. Uh, economic principles do you think it's most important for small and medium businesses to understand? And I, I, I guess uh, let me ask it uh, a second way too, which would be um, if you were to invest in a small and medium business, what would you look at other than the financial statements? What, what would you look at th- them having some knowledge of? Uh, you know, it's a very difficult uh, thing to, on a micro level, to talk about a successful company and what it does. I mean, I've run a number of companies myself. I do a conference called Freedom Fest every year out in Vegas, and we're a for-profit event, so I'm quite aware of all the the angles uh, that you have to look at uh, on the demand side and the supply side. I mean, costs, there's... I certainly think the the number one rule of 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 a successful company is to be cost conscious. I, I still think that that is absolutely essential. And too often, uh, you have employees who are uh, not cost conscious and end up spending money because they're they're not they don't have skin in the game. They don't have uh, partial ownership, and they just uh, uh, waste of time and money for a company. Um, so I do think the second factor is uh, to have skin in the game, to have uh, incentivize your employees to develop their own talents, uh, to uh, find, to be rewarded when they come up with a, a new product and improve production process, which is just as important as as creating new marketing opportunities, uh, you know, ways to cut costs and, and ways to benefit those people. And I think you can incentivize them with, uh, with stock options, uh, with uh, profit sharing, uh, with uh, uh, just ways to reward your employees uh, is is really helpful because oftentimes it's it's your your own employees that can come up with uh, novel ways to uh, to get new business uh, to uh, reduce costs. So those are I think some of the critical factors that make for a successful company. So it's it's both on the on the demand side and the supply side. There's both ways to incentivize everybody so that they can uh, perform better. That's really the key. Sure. Sure. Um, and I've only got about five minutes left with you, so I apologize for jumping topics on you, but I, I wanted to, to make sure I got this in, and that is, what, what are your thoughts on, on blockchain technology? And then, of course, also Bitcoin, but more concentrating on, on block, the blockchain as a technology. And we had a big debate on this um, for quite a few years at, at Freedom Fest, and uh, I, I 
I've played the Bitcoin uh, market a number of times in my newsletter uh, and personally and made money on a short-term basis, but it's so volatile that uh, it, it really, as Steve Forbes uh, tells me, it's not quite a currency yet because you don't, you don't have that stable value, which is so essential to uh, uh, have... Uh, have a medium of exchange that people use rather than as a speculative vehicle. Uh, so I'm, I think the jury is still out on what the value is for these, uh, current, uh, uh, these cryptocurrencies. Uh, mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the blockchain technology is very real, and many, many top companies are now looking at them and, and developing ways to benefit from, uh, from this blockchain concept of, uh, of creating a way to uh, maintain uh, records, if you will, uh, uh, electronic records, digital records of uh, transactions, and do it in a way that uh, protects you uh, from security uh, breaches. Uh, I can't wait for the day when this has been adopted by the title insurance companies, which I've always thought is a racket, in real estate, uh, taking advantage of people, uh, they they seem to have a almost a monopoly, if you will, uh, with and and just in general um, medical records, uh, real estate records, all kinds of record keeping. Uh, it seems like the blockchain has this potential of um, reducing the cost. Uh, of um, the paper trails and the costs involved with uh, recording various transactions, whether it's stocks and so forth. We've had uh, uh, Patrick uh, uh, Byrne from Overst- uh, Overstock, who's uh, very much in it, trying to do this for the stock market and so forth. So I, I think there's a definite uh, potential profit there, and I'm a real fan of that kind of technology. And uh, probably my last question for you, I've got about two minutes, is what are your thoughts on the, the, the gig economy? Is this, is this still a major shift or is this just kind of a, a little tweak to the way that things are done? Well, I'm, I'm sure, not sure what you mean by the gig economy. Um, the, the Uber, where Uber doesn't own any cars, but they match people up, Airbnb, oh. the, the fact that just, you know, the, these, these technologies that are based on just small gigs that happen as opposed to, you know, long-term employment. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought you, you were talking about, uh, uh gigs in terms of number of, uh, the size of, uh, the computer power and that sort of thing. So, uh, uh, yeah, you know, uh, there, there is this uh, argument that uh, uh, automobile business is now in a secular downtrend. Uh, young people will use more and more uh, alternative ways of getting around, uh, certainly an area that I've used more uh, with uh, Uber and Lyft and so forth, um, Airbnb. I mean, I'm using all of those things and, and uh as we travel around and so forth. I actually think the Airbnb is really a powerful tool, uh, but again, I think it's, uh, it's going to hurt uh, the hotel business, the traditional um, hospitality business uh, in a very major way. So this is a uh, 
serious disruptive technology that uh, on net balance is a very positive thing, but it is, does have major implications into the traditional role of, uh, of, of companies. The same thing that's happening with uh, Amazon disrupting uh, the technology of uh, grocery, uh, you know, various uh, uh, shopping malls and stores and that sort of thing. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, a new, new world out there, that's for sure. Yes, outstanding. Well, uh, great stuff, Mark. Thanks for being on the show. Ron's going to take you to, through the last segment, one more 15-minute segment with us. But I want to remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an aim, email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website, thesoulofenterprise.com. And of all, now now our Patreon site, which is available at patreon.com slash tsoe for those of you who want to skip the commercials. But now a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're honored to be here with Mark Skousen. He's one of my favorite economics authors. And, uh, Mark, I'm looking at a whole bookshelf of your books uh, that I've read by you. And I just, you've taught me so much economics. And I wanted to get, I wanted to ask you, you know, the Nobel Prize winner one year in economics was Daniel Kahneman, a psychologist. And behavioral economics has become a massive field. We've had Dan Ariely on the show and others talking about behavioral economics. What's your take on behavioral economics? Is it, is it making great insights into human behavior? Well, I, I like uh, what has been done in behavioral economics. Uh, Richard Thaler won the Nobel Prize. Uh, I thought it was a long uh, 
coming, uh, and uh, Daniel Kahneman as well, you know, who's not an economist, but uh, certainly his book, uh, Think Think Slow, Think Fast, is really an important contribution in this area, and Robert Schiller as well. All of them trying to show that, uh, that, you know, going back to the efficient market theory, that uh, the University of Chicago School uh, under Milton Friedman and Eugene Fama and others uh, basically were saying that entrepreneurs were so good that they could eliminate, uh, I mean, it, it was virtually impossible to beat the market. And, and they were correct in so many ways uh, that uh, the evidence has been pretty strong that it's extremely difficult to beat the market. Uh, but it still ignored the major mistakes that often are made by individuals who get emotionally caught up in the marketplace, um, and it is very difficult to stay fully invested when the market is uh, crashing and falling. Uh, it, it's it's the biggest fear that investors have of losing fifty or sixty percent of their portfolio. And yes, it'll hopefully come back, but you have to have a lot of faith in the capitalist financial system that that will happen. And people make mistakes all the time. And so, so studies have shown, uh, have focused on these mistakes and how you can minimize them. And I, lo- I kind of like the libertarian paternalism is the term that Schiller or uh, Thaler uses to describe how you encourage people to save more by having them sign up automatically in their 401k plans and automatically add to those accounts uh, that has done a really good job to increase savings rates. So uh, it's called the smart plan. And I talk about it in, in, in EconoPower, one of my recent books. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of helpful information that is there to counter the idea that the markets are always efficient and you don't have to uh, worry about uh, the markets just buy an index fund and and everything will be fine. I, I think there's there's a lot of benefits you can draw, some positive contributions you can get from the efficient market school of Eugene Fama and so forth, as well as the behavioral economists in developing what is known as modern portfolio theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, we... You know, we teach pricing a lot uh, to professionals and others, and and we have found some some of the behavioral economic insights really applicable in that field. And Mark, you wrote an economics tech textbook called Economic Logic, and I was telling Ed before you got on that I, I wish I would have had this in my college economics course. It it would have stopped me from going down some dead ends. And I are you familiar with Alexandria Ocasio Cortez the gal who won the primary in upper New York, I think it was. No, what's that? What's that about? Uh, uh, well, she's a socialist and she ran on the Democratic oh, Party. Yeah, yeah, but, no, okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know who you're okay. talking about. Yes. Yeah. Well, Mark, she's yeah, got I, a degree in economics from Boston University. And I just, what is the state of economic education when somebody like that can get a degree in economics? Well, uh, I think economics suffers still. I, I wrote a book in the early 1990s called Economics on Trial, 
And while the number of economics textbooks that are pro-market uh, have increased, uh, there's still some serious uh, um, pitfalls that are just not addressed. Uh, I use, for example, the A&W principle, uh, which is a very powerful concept. The A stands for accountability, and it means the user pays. And I talk over and over again to, I make it very clear to uh, economic students that when you give away something that's very valuable, like medical care or school or education, uh, and you give it away for free, the demand increases but there, people don't appreciate it. Students don't appreciate uh, an education. And, and I point out that students who have a full, uh, who, who pay for part or all of their education, choose their major sooner, get better grades, and graduate quicker. Um, there's the incentives do work. It's all about incentives. And you remove those incentives with, under socialism. Uh, the welfare principles, you help those who need help, but you don't help those who don't need help. So you have to have a means test or something, because if you're too generous with the W, with the welfare, it, it hurts the accountability. And, and they're constantly, you have to have a right balance between the two when it comes to policy. And I point out to students that, uh, uh, free medical care, single-payer systems, or free school tuition, which are two of the big uh, proponents of socialism today, violate both the A&W principle. And students get it right away. At the end, we toast each other with A&W root beer. It's really kind of a fun <laughs> thing for people to remember. But it's something I teach in my economic logic textbook, um, and it's you know, socialism is, is, you have to have good argument. You can't just say uh, socialism doesn't work. You need to replace it with something that does work. And so that's where sound economic principles like the A&W principle is really good because it doesn't, uh, it, it sounds like you, you are comp uh, compassionate as well as a sound economist with the A&W principle, but you have to have the right balance. And students really relate to that today. They don't relate to the Ayn Rand, pure Ayn Rand, selfishness is a virtue kind of stuff. They do not relate to that. And to teach that is just going down the wrong road, in my opinion. The A&W principle is a much stronger way to develop it. And, and by the way, with the minimum wage laws, I give, give them legitimate, genuine ways to raise wages through productivity and incentives, uh, and you list those, and when students see that there are alternatives to the minimum wage that are natural, that are non-government, dealing with private enterprise, and I tell the $5 a day story is Henry Ford, students love that, and they quickly see no reason to support the minimum wage law. So I wish I could get out there that message a little bit more publicly, that there are legitimate, non-forced, non-enforced ways to raise raise the wages of average workers. Right, right. You know, you mentioned Economics on Trial, and, and that is a fantastic book, folks. And we will link, Mark, to all of your books uh, on our site uh, in uh, the show notes for this episode. And, um, you know, Ed, Ed wanted me to ask you a question. 
What about the compromise idea that you're responsible for health care up to 15% of your income and after that single payer? We've only got about a half minute, but what would you think of that compromise? Well, I, I actually prefer the, if you want to adopt something, look at the MetaSave program that Singapore has. I think that's a nice combination uh, or even even the ones, the health savings accounts that uh, that you have at Whole Foods and other uh uh, is becoming very popular now, the whole health savings accounts. Those are, I think, better alternatives than, uh, than some of these more uh, socialistic uh, solutions. Totally agree with that. Mark Skousen, thank you so much for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. We really appreciate it. We hope you come back. Ed, what's on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we have our interview with David Milkey. Oh, fantastic. All right. I will see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. And in the meantime, please do visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com.